Some people celebrate the holidays, but you, you dominate the holidays. You deck the halls, the mantle, and anything else that will stand still. You deserve a bold cold brew that's as festive as you. Topped with creamy cookie butter cold foam, covered in cookie butter crumbles, and perfectly pairable with our new cookie butter donut, Dunkin's Cookie Butter Cold Brew is a delicious match for your decked out domination. America runs on Dunkin'. Present participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply. My name is Tracy Ariel, and I am unapologetically Canadian. This week, I am speaking with Lauren Trottier. This is actually a conversation uh, that we had a couple of years ago. I'm pulling it out of the archives because right now, science and technology is getting a lot of attention with the extension of 5G. And uh, this, uh, when it comes to public education in Montreal, Lauren Trottier is one of the people that uh, people rely on. So um, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Very, uh, you know, basic story about how I got going on, on, on my sort of most of my in my life, in my career, whatever. It's a story that I told many times, but uh, uh, certainly not everybody's heard it. But um, you know, when I was uh, <coughs> when I was pretty young, uh, about 11 years old, I made made a new friend uh, at, at a day camp that I was going to. Here in Montreal? Here in Montreal, yeah. I grew up in Montreal. So, you know, when I was, um, when I was, you know, a, a youngster up until, uh, until I became a teenager, we, we lived actually in the Plateau area. Okay. You know, and then we moved to uh, Snowden, right behind here, when I was a teenager. And so the day camp there, was where? It was called Neighborhood House. Was and on, that was in the Plateau then? It was in, on Clark. Oh, really? Okay. Clark, Clark near... Uh, between Marianne and uh, Mount Royal. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. So it's <laughs> right in the. I'm not sure if that building is still there. I have to. I, I drive. I don't drive down Clark that much. I usually go down St. Urban when I'm heading down there, but it was on Clark. And uh, anyway, it was it was a very good place. I went to it for many, quite a few summers, quite a few summers. So I met a new friend there, and uh, <clears throat> when we went over to his place, uh, he showed me things that he was doing. It turns out he was he was building electronic projects and he had an older brother it was I guess 15 or something at the time I thought was a really old, old guy <laughs> <laughs> the world the way the kid looks at it who was, was doing ham, ham radio oh okay yeah so what and, year would that have been well so probably if I can't do my math it would have been 1959 summer oh, okay. of 59 summer of 59 okay. <laughs> yeah right so imagine back then that's long before the internet for cable TV, you know, things were very different world. It was a very different world. So for uh, for another real kid to see somebody who's talking on a, on a radio system and talking to people all over the world, like my eyes popped there. I said, "Holy America, this is really cool." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love to do that kind of stuff, you know. Really, and my my, my younger friend who you know who's who was very good at building things, and so uh, I decided, hey, I want to get into this. So um, I went to the first thing I, I did is I, I went to the library and started taking out books uh, for kids about electricity, electronics. Wanted to know how how radio works, how how a television works, and all this kind of stuff. 
and I also wanted to build build things, so I figured I've got books on how to build things. Um, and so, you know, I, I, that's how I, I got started in, in, elect, in electronics, you know, as a hobbyist, build, building building gadgets of one kind or another. Uh, as an aside, is that friend still part of your life? I don't see him hardly anymore, actually. We, we drifted apart uh, when we got to university. He, his family background was... Um, it's a little tougher. His mother died when he was, I think, when he was in high school or, or something, and that, and that uh, <coughs> he didn't he didn't finish his university. I wrote the Columbia Church he went to university, so that's kind of where we drift, started to drift apart. But, I still but for see a while, it was an adventure together. Oh yeah, yeah, it was a real adventure back then. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, <coughs> so you know, um, but. Um, I, I was really interested in, in, in that, but I, I also got interested in science at about, at about you know about the same time because I was interested to understand how, how these electrical electronic devices worked. Then, but I discovered in the in the same section of the library books about science and like that you could understand things about nature, like the solar system, how it how it how it how it was formed and uh, how it evolved. And, how life developed over, 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 over through evolution over, over long periods of time and so on. So to me, like that was like understanding how how all all these things worked with, became a, you know, and, and it remains a passion. You know, I really love that stuff. So um, <clears throat> you know, so my later life, you know, I've, I've been able to re-engage my interest in science as well as technology. So you know, things like the uh, symposium I sponsor at McGill and many other things that we were doing uh, with our, our foundation are, are encouraging science and research and education and all that kind of stuff. And I, I really love it. So, um, but at an early age, um, one of my aunts. Um, got me a, a book about science, which was an introduction to science for, for young people. It was one of, one of my treasured books, and uh, I still have it. <laughs> and uh, so it's about when I was maybe 13, and uh, she asked me, like, what do, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, well, a scientist. Ah, okay. So, so then she asked me, like, well, what kind? Oh, I said, I realized, uh-oh, <laughs> you got to choose. <laughs> so he's like, a kid in the candy store, there's all these interesting things. So, um, you know, I ended up uh, choosing electronics. That was my, kind of my first passion, and uh, I, still, I still get a kick out of that. Now, the, when you were t- doing electronics at 11, just to, were you actually making ham radios? Were you making, I didn't get that in advance. Right what were you <laughs> what did I start it out? I mean, <laughs> uh, I still remember... One thing that you know, it's kind of, it sounds kind of crazy, you know, but you know, back then, we, we weren't a we weren't a wealthy family, or whatever. But, you know, just uh, so I didn't have a lot of money, but you know, I managed to get some money to buy just start out with a battery. And I got this battery, and I spent you know, you know, I guess hours or something looking at it. I found it beautiful, <laughs> just looking at it. <laughs> But anyway, I, I built uh, the first thing. The first thing I built was a simple telegraph, oh, you know, electromagnetic, electromagnetic uh, uh, magnet, whatever, with wire around a nail or something. Made an electromagnet. I made a, I made a crystal radio. Oh, okay. Uh, that was a big thing. Like when I when I got that radio to work, like, <laughs> I, 
I, I, I invited my parents, I met my brothers, I invited the neighbors to come. <laughs> 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 I, was so, I was so excited by that. Is that still in the plateau? Yeah, they were still in the plateau at that time. Yeah. So what, how old were you, roughly? Well, we moved when I was 13, so I probably okay. built that crystal radio when I was 12 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so very soon so. after you got this passion. So yeah, that's like, right. You brought the neighbors in. <laughs> did a you did an official launch. <laughs> to me, it was like the greatest thing. <laughs> I can appreciate that. My son is in the process. He just built a uh, 3D printer. Right. So he's been making okay. all these things on that. And yeah. we've got all these animals sitting on the counter from wow. his 3D printer. So, But I mean, he's 21, so it's a little wow. later then. Yeah. Okay. Imagine the, the neighbors being quite thrilled to, for a kid that you know. Yeah, so it's pretty all, exciting. All, all those things, and um, <clears throat> that would have been what 60, 1960 or something. Yeah, probably about 60, 61, something like that. Yeah, 12 years old. Yeah. Twelve and That's when people were still sitting around the radio too, right? So. Yeah, my mother had this old vacuum tube radio. You have to wait a minute for it to warm up, but every morning. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, we had a television where you had to change the tubes, and we had to shake it in order for it to oh, function. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you would go to the drugstore and, and test your tubes there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, with that day. funny little thing that you would put yeah. it in, and if it lit up, it's like that tube's okay. <laughs> yeah, right, there you go. So anyway, so that's a lot of that stuff. Anyway, you know, and I started getting into ham radio uh, in high school and uh, so on. I still dabble with things. I still like to build things myself uh, to some degree, but um, like what? Um, you know, actually, I, I've become uh, a, 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 a radio-controlled airplanes. Ah. Is, a, is a big thing for me. Okay, no, drones. Hey, drones. Well, drones is the, is the latest uh, kind of radio-controlled flying machine. I have some of those as well, uh, and those are very, very popular now. They're gaining mass popularity, but. You know, I got I got into radio-controlled airplanes uh, when I was about 20 years old. Uh, oh wow! Okay. Uh, when I was a student at Miguel, that's when I had, started to have a little bit of money to be able to buy a little bit, a little bit more expensive stuff. Oh. It wasn't that expensive, but anyway, uh, still not that expensive. But you know, for a kid that didn't have any money. But uh, you know, so these airplanes, you could build them out of balsa wood and assemble them, and there was the oh, uh, those little things. Well, I mean, I okay. mean, these are not small planes anymore. I mean. Uh, Typical, typical airplane I have is about a five or six foot wingspan. Oh, so do you fly? Is, are these things that you're actually flying in? Or no, no, I don't fly them. They're radio unmanned. controlled, unmanned. So, okay. you know, I mean, uh, to fly air, model airplanes of that size, you need to be uh, in a in a club which has a field that's uh, dedicated to that. You can't fly that on the street or anything like that. They're, they're way too dangerous to fly. Yeah, yeah, past the era of that. A lot of people are flying these drones in places that they shouldn't, but these drones are, um, the drones that they have today are, um, don't require uh, hardly any uh, skill to fly. Right. You know, they're, um, they're, they have so much um, intelligence built into them that, um, you know, any, you can just start flying it without, without any, any real practice, whereas... Airplanes, even drones. Depending if you switch off some of the uh, the more automated functions, then they become more more challenging, and more interesting. So I find it more interesting to fly these things because it's, 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 it's a skill that you you learn, and you you know I'm not I'm not that good at it, but you you, you develop the ability to do more and more tricks, aerobatic maneuvers, and things like that. Okay, is it all so, by hand controllers, levers? I mean, then, uh, or, you know, you have a transmitter with, with two joysticks. Oh, okay. You know, and 
there are four there are four basic controls on an airplane, fly an airplane. Four very basic ones. And pretty much every you know there's the, the ailerons are on the wings, which make the, the plane tilt. Okay. And then there's the elevator that you know makes it go up or down. And then there's the rudder in the back, which also makes it go left or right. Mm-hmm. And then the, the throttle for the engine. Those, those are the four basic controls. And these two joysticks, they each have, they can go up or down or left or right. That's a total of four, uh, okay. four things. And, so you're um, actually controlling two different things with each joystick? Two, two so different, well, doesn't that, yeah, isn't that right. hard to manipulate them? Because you well, actually that's have why, to well, think. It takes some practice. So, okay. trying to do, I mean, uh, but dr- drones also have those basic controls. Except that uh, they, they make them uh, to such an extent that it requires very little skill. So, very basic, very basic thing you you have to master when you're flying an airplane is is your your sense of direction, left and ra- left and right. So, you know, when the airplane is going away from you and you want to go left, you know, there's a stick that you turn it to the left and it goes left. Turn it to the right. But when it's coming towards you. Those directions are reversed. You have to do the opposite. The drones, the new modern drones, when it comes to those basic directions, um, you don't have to learn them because it, it, it has an internal uh, gyroscope, so to speak, oh, a okay. GPS. So when you when you go left, no matter which way it's pointing, you'll always go left. Ah, so it sort of balances. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't okay. matter which way it's oriented. But it must have sensors or extra things on it to do that, though. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it has all kinds of sophisticated... Uh, electronics and it's amazing what they've done with the electronics so it's, uh, it's unbelievable, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so uh, you know so I mean that's why they become so popular is because you don't have to go through this learning curve and uh, if you're if you're learning you often can have you know make mistakes and crash your airplane and have to fix it so you got to have a, a certain willpower to um, anyway it's a hobby that uh, you still enjoy. Still enjoy. I still got to kick out. I, I, I love flying machines. I love airplanes. So, okay. To me, it's just it's just a way of uh, doing that. Plus, it's a way for me to uh, engage my passion for tinkering and fixing things and building things and fooling around. Right. I got to kick out of that. And which, so, which I which started when I was eleven, and it's been a lifelong thing. So. So that's at McGill then. Well, how did Matrox come into that? Then? McGill, well, you were doing an engineering degree then? Yeah, I did an engineering degree. Yeah, and engineering, yeah. which, which electrical, sort of engineering? Electrical engineering. Oh, okay. So you yeah. were still doing the uh, electromagnetic uh, specialty, basically. Well, when I studied at McGill, I mean, uh, we studied it's, it's electrical engineering, but it was a fairly broad thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I ended up following more the electronics path. Oh, okay. uh, within that okay. and so on and, um, that would have been in the late 60s I graduated in, with my bachelor's degree in 70 oh okay but anyway well, one advantage I had over other other students studying this stuff was you know most of them were, were studying it as you know career thing they, they, they had no prior you know, they, there was no hobbyist uh, you know, so me, I, 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 I had been building these electronic things from a young age. I'd been reading books, you know, that were not engineering level books, but basic, you know, explaining basic theory of operation of these things. So I already had a certain practical knowledge and a practical understanding of how they worked. So this when is I, when you're I, deepening your theory, but you already knew exactly. the basics, so you could exactly. understand. Exactly, so I could relate the, the, theory, the abstract theory to, to actual, you know, real things, much more so than most of my classmates. Prior to developing my, my interest in, in, in electronics and science at the age of 11, I was kind of an average student, so it wasn't particularly good. 
but after that, I became like an excellent student. You know, and you know, my high school, like that was uh, Baron Bing. I was, you know, pretty much near the top you know, most of the time in, in, in my grade. So the discipline, the interest, what do you think changed? I guess the passion for it and the, the, the interest to really understand these things. I mean, I had all the passion oh, for it, okay. so you know, I really wanted to understand. So I put the energy into, 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 into understanding it, so that translated into you know, good results in, in school. Uh, when I got to McGill, you know, back then they didn't have the CGEP, so I went from grade 11 to McGill. To oh, McGill. okay. Okay. And uh, at McGill, in, in the engineering class I, that I was in, like, holy mackerel. There were some really, really brilliant kids there. <laughs> a lot smarter than me, a lot more gifted. And that came as quite a shock. Like, wow, because before that I, you know, did a certain amount of work, but it wasn't wasn't too wasn't too heavy. It was, it was really heavy stuff. And some of these some of these other kids in my class, they seemed to pick it up like that, and I had to really struggle. You know. So it took me it took me a, a couple two three years there to get my my bearing again and to 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 really start bearing down on it and, and mastering it in a way that, you know, was, was, was closer to uh, what I had been doing in high school. So that was, uh, that was quite an adjustment, but it was, it was good. It was good at... Um, so did you do a master's there too then? I did a master's there as well, yeah. And what was your master's? Uh, also in electronics, uh, but it was more theoretical stuff. But actually my master's degree was, was a good thing that I did it. Not so much for the, the actual project I worked on, but but I got exposed to uh, using mini computers. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, as as a back in the, in those days in the in the 60s, through most of the 70s, uh, most students who you know did computer work as an undergraduate, the closest they got to a computer was was typing a bunch of punch cards. I remember filling this out with paint with <laughs> tiny little pencils. Right, yeah, right. Well, I mean, with, well, I mean you, you could type, but it would punch things on a card. And those were instructions that you know, became the program. You never you never even saw the computer. You saw it from a distance running in the back of the big mainframe. <clears throat> but uh, when I started my, uh, my master's project, I was going to have to uh, write some software that would simulate an electronic digital processing was for, for processing of speech by a computer and um, so I was going to have to learn how to program in assembly language which is uh, in order to get the performance out of it you have to go into a lower level language and um, the very first machine that they had started fortunately within a few months they got in a, a better machine but the very first machine was a very primitive thing that had a um, you know teletype machine you know who those those teletypes yes yes uh, it said telexes and in order to program this thing for quote properly uh, you had to load like a like a text editor was something that you had to load into the computer before you could start editing a program and the text editor was on paper tape so you had to you know let load this paper tape into the machine and then after that was loaded then you would start typing in your program which would also be printed out on, on a paper tape which they would then reload it to the machine too it was a whole big pile of you know as far as I was good red tape all with that that's way too much trouble so I, I noticed on the front panel this thing there were switches oh, okay. and if you know anything about computers com computers at the big, most basic level in machine language 
work in a, in a code called binary. Yeah, zero, 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 and ones. And you could actually toggle in through the switches very simple programs in binary. Oh, so you did that? <laughs> I did that. So instead of filling out the papers, you actually did it with the switches? Yeah, I mean, very simple program. Just, just to learn how it worked. <laughs> that cut through. What year was that? Oh, that would have been about 1970. Oh, that's also in the same, like you graduated from uh, your yeah, bachelor's and went yeah, right into okay. Yeah. Okay, wow, all right. So that would probably have been in the fall of 1970 when I started the master's program. So, you know, by doing that, it kind of forced me to learn about, about the, the architecture of my computers and machine language and binary and all that stuff, which I had studied in very abstract theory as an undergraduate. But here I was actually get, getting into it in a very, very direct way down at the real hard, low level hardware and really and that, to and avoid that, paperwork and, and, and to avoid paperwork that's right and that and that, that 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 what i what i taught myself and basically i taught it to myself uh you know it ended up being one of the most valuable skills i had going forward and you know, when we started matrox and all the rest it was uh, one of the one of the foundational uh, pieces of technology that i, I needed. Now, when was the foundation of matrox then 76 Okay, and that was so. What had you been doing up until then? Because you finished your in what? Yeah, so I, I so I, I kind of started working in '72. So I, okay. uh, you know, I hadn't quite finished my master's thesis at that time, but I finished it uh, while I was working for the following year. But I started in '72. With what company? A company called Central Dynamics doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. I mean, uh, the, what they what they did basically. Uh, they were in the television industry, and they were making equipment for producing television programs. Equipment for producing, what does that mean? Well, I don't know if you've ever seen the control room of a, of a television production. There's a big, mm -hmm. uh, big control panel, they call it a switcher, and a whole bunch of buttons and levers and stuff like that. That's how they, they, they control what goes on air. They switch to different cameras, they dissolve between camera one and camera two. When it's time for a commercial, they bring that in. And put up title graphics for the scores and whatever you know. It's a, it's called a production switcher. Okay. So that's one of the main products that they made. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was uh, fascinating because uh, these were the products that um, could s you could see what they produced. Right. You know, because like you're, when you're watching at the open of the television, you can see what what these things are, are doing. So I learned. Uh, you know the basic foundations of, 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 of television production, television equipment, uh, all, all things to do with television electronics. So that was a very important uh, bit of learning. And then uh, a couple of year, after a couple of years, I, I, at '74, I moved to Canadian Marconi. I worked on. Um, they were they were using mini computers to do um, a satellite navigation system, and uh, so I learned how to make cards that could interface to a mini-computer oh, and make okay. a mini-computer output information or whatever. So anyway, so that, those two underlying technology are, were the foundation of, of Matrox. And I met my partner there, who also had a similar kind of background. Who was your partner? Uh, his name is Branko, B-R-A-N-K-O, Matic, M-A-T-I-C. So um, met him there. And, uh, we met at Marconi. We met at Marconi and we decided to uh, form this company. So Matrox is actually a combination of our initials of our last name, his last name M-A-T, Matic, and my last name T-R-O. Oh, 
And then what was the X for then? You said excellence. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't know. If you look at some electronics companies, Electrolux, Electrovox, uh, Electro, I don't know. There's, there's companies that have X's on the. We figured out. But that's because of electronics. They just yeah, use right. the X for the... X. Anyway, whatever, I don't think... But <laughs> we use the X one. So Matrox, that's where it came from. Oh, okay. And so, uh, you know, most of the products we've done since... From for the last 40 years are some kind of combination of computer and, uh, and you know, uh, video, television. Okay. Um, that's awesome. And so yeah. it still exists and you're still uh, an owner. Is it a private company? Yeah. It's so it's not gone public yet? No. You don't want to, too? Well, we've been tempted over the years, but you know, we've probably been better off not doing it. Us and the, both us and the public. <laughs> so is it still <laughs> only a do it like the two partners that yeah. own everything still? Yeah, yeah, basically. And how many employees do you have then? What six hundred employees at the moment? And so you have people running it for you. Are you purely an owner, or are you also on the management team? I'm on the management team. I still go into work. Uh, like what this one going after this? Oh, okay. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I, I, and you're still uh, with your original partner. Still there, and we're, we're, we're still. Um, That's still almost like man- your brother. Man- managing to to get to make the company go somehow, and uh, uh, you know, the company has been profitable over a lot, uh, every year since, since we started, pretty much. Really? Yeah. Every year, even every, at the beginning. Even, even the first year, we made a little bit of money the first year. Yeah. Really? Oh yeah. yeah. I don't think very many entrepreneurs <coughs> can say that. Well, the the, the, uh, the, the, the the you know we grew up in a different era, I guess. Um, nowadays, you know, venture capital and startups, and it's, it's a whole it's a whole whole culture of doing things, which which works well for a lot of people, for many many people. <clears throat> but when we started, um, there was no no venture capital or nothing like that. So we we, we you know I think the thing that helped us was um, we picked. A kind of product to develop uh, that was based on on the, on the knowledge that we had both both had with our prior, prior experience, and didn't cost a lot of money to develop. Okay. Uh, it was relatively inexpensive, so it really took. Uh, I think that the starting capital of Matrix was something like twenty thousand dollars. And you, the two of you, raised that on your own. We raised it from from our, our own money and a, and a couple of other investors, whatever. We were able to start selling those products within six months of starting. Wow, really? Yeah. And we were able to make a profit from the beginning. So, um, so from there it kind of bootstrapped. So we haven't, we haven't put any more money in. The ultimate bootstrapped company. (laughs) We haven't put any, any of our own money in. That's astonishing. (laughs) What an inspiration. (laughs) That is pretty good. Pretty good. Trying to do that again today, I don't know if that's possible, but uh, you know, things have become a lot harder. But I mean, some things, some companies, uh, I don't Anyway, so, I, we, we just happened to do that. And, I mean, we grew slowly at the beginning, which is another thing that helped. You know, that may be another lesson. You know, it wasn't necessarily my choice, it was happened to be with the kind of product we chose and you know, the, the competitive landscape at the time, and so on and so forth. But. Uh, but anyway, I mean, one of the things that I, 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 I think I'm most proud of, I guess, of, of all that, is that we've been able to stay in business for so long. Yeah. Um, and have gone through many, many technological changes and have been able to find 
new product lines, new markets, new, new ideas, new things to keep going. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I mean, um, there aren't too many companies um, that started out like us that long ago that are still around. <laughs> well, with that many, when you think of the technological changes in the in in that field, yeah, in forty years, yeah. It is kind of impressive. I mean, and you yeah. only have the one company that you don't have any branch companies anywhere else. It's really one company in Montreal, stable. And yeah. I, su- I assume yeah, you're. I mean, we've been up and down. We we we, 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 were, we were we were we reached our peak around uh, around the late '90s, 2000, uh, when we we had a kind of a runaway success with with our, our graphics cards. Oh, right, okay. That's probably what, what, you know, anybody who would have heard of us probably knows us because of, because of that. We had a phenomenal, phenomenal run on that. But we were, we, we were not able to sustain our, that position of leadership. So, um, we're a bit, a bit, in some ways, like uh, uh, Blackberry. I mean, we, I mean, we started in 1976, and we grew slowly, 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 70s, 80s. Somewhere in the mid-90s, we, we struck gold with, this, with these graphic things and it kind of zoomed you know, like, a, like a meteor. <laughs> uh, but we kind of flamed out at some point. But we've, we're still, we still have a very uh, profitable uh, niche business in a number of specialized areas that we're still, still very like good what? at. Um, so when did you flame out? Would you say what era was that? It was around 2000, okay. early 2000s. That's kind of when we flamed out. But um, you know, uh, today we're uh, we, we have um, we have three basic areas that we're we're involved in um, in the computer graphics side, which is you know what what we used to begin. We we um, we're pretty strong in, in what are called uh, display walls. Are things where you have lots of screens and you display lots of information, right? So that those kinds of things, and um, public information displays as well, things where you have signs, you know, in, in shopping malls or kiosks or airports, where you have monitors displaying information. So that's one area that we're we're, we're pretty strong in. Uh, another area is in the, is the television production area in the television industry. Oh, so um, you've remained in that from the beginning then. Uh, well, we, I actually brought Matrix into that uh, back in probably, I don't remember when we did, probably the late 80s, okay. when we decided to get, we were, we, were, we were making various products involving computers and video displays, but the actual broadcast things that we sell, sell into the television production industry started, got into it in the late 80s, I think. But today, we, we, um, when you watch any kind of sports nightly news and things of that nature and you see on-screen graphics like uh, you know, the sports scores or that kind of stuff okay. uh, if you watch the elections like the US elections unfortunately currently um, I was told that um, something like 90% of the graphics you saw on election night on whatever network showing the election results. were yours? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> we're not really famous, but we're, we're you know we're, we are seen in, in a way. You don't really know what you're looking at, but it's it's our cards that are somewhere in the bowels of the television studios producing those uh, those graphic displays. Oh, okay. So that's another thing. And the third and, thing. And the, th- the third thing we're we're, we're actually we're becoming very strong in is in the machine vision. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. this is AI. 
Kind of, yeah. AI is uh, is, is something that we're uh, we're um, you know there's there's different kinds of AI, but the la the latest flavor of the AI, which is called deep learning, mm -hmm. is something that we're we're just getting going in right now. But I, I, I suspect that 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 may um, have a very significant impact on this market. But uh, you know, for 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 most kinds of factory automation. The algorithms that we've developed over over many years, because we've been in this image image processing business for a long time, are, are good enough. They do they do the job, and uh, we have a, we have some major success in that area in the machine vision, writing robots that are assembling various things, right. and stuff like that. And, um, so so a, 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 AI, you can say AI uh, uh, one kind or another has been around for a long time. Okay. Even when I was a kid, when I developed my first. Uh, interest in electronics when I was 11, 12 years old. I was buying buying magazines for, called Popular Electronics and uh, they had articles in there about artificial intelligence and how it was going to take over the world mm -hmm. back then. <laughs> but anyway, but uh, there's been some breakthroughs in, in, uh, in the last few years, within the last 10 years, there's some significant breakthroughs in there, uh, that area, which actually in Montreal... Um, at the University of Montreal and McGill, they're, they're one of the leaders in the world in that right now. They have some really tough. Well, that's why Google opened their AI center here, right? Google and Microsoft yeah. and so on, like that. Yeah, so there, there, there's some very top, top, top work happening here, and we're we're, we're gonna we're gonna try we're trying to we're gonna tap into that to make a next generation of products that will have even more capability than, than our previous uh, generation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So do you have a big research team then? Yep, yep, we have a pretty big R&D. So is it, uh, what, a third of the workforce, or one-tenth yeah. of the workforce? At what least a third, yeah. Third. At yeah. least a third? Oh, yeah, it's, 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 we're very heavily R&D. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I like, still like to explore the, understand the technology that we're in and what it could be used for and what applications we can get into with it. And, so I like to uh, discuss those things with, with our engineers. I go to a few trade shows a year to keep abreast of what's what's happening and so on. So it, uh, it keeps my mind uh, active, amongst other things. Well, I understand you also run the foundation on the side, which I didn't want to finish this interview without mentioning that because it's like... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, it's a, become a family and, uh, uh, foundation and uh, family members are... are are, are, are now getting heavily involved in that, and uh, it's good because. Uh, when did you start we it? Started it in uh, around 2000. Uh, I'm passionate about uh, many of the things that we're involved with there, and um, you know, so um, just as uh, you know, one example, uh, something that I'm, I'm very happy with is um, uh, one of the one of the gifts we gave fairly early on. About ten years ago, something like that. Um, uh, McGill, we gave a gift for um, to establish a, a chair in astrophysics. And Vicky Caspi, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's a famous uh, well, you know, scientist. She's one of the top top people in the world in, in the area of neutron stars. So, so she she occupies that chair. I've got to know her pretty well. And uh, uh, greatly admire the work that she does. She has a great, there's a great team of people in, in the uh, astrophysics group at McGill. They're doing terrific work, and uh, we're continuing to support them. Um, at the same time, um, 
There's another another group at the University of Montreal uh, involved in exoplanet research. Oh, okay. I don't You'll probably be hearing a lot about this guy in a couple of years from now, but his name is René Doyon. He's, he's one of the world's uh, top uh, exoplanet researchers. And so we're funding some of his work as well. So this and is all very um, base science. It's not necessarily this, something this, that's this, practical or this, it doesn't this, this, this piece is. This piece is, yeah. I mean, um, there, are, there are practical spin-offs that come from this, this work. Uh, but fundamentally, it's, it's, uh, it's basic research. And, uh, you know, I, I, the technology that, that they're using is uh, is very advanced, and um, the, the people who design that that technology, that electronics, and so on that they're using, those skills can be used for other things. Even at Matrox, some of the things they do is technology that we use, but not 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 for the same purpose, but it's similar technology. So there's practical training involved. But uh, there's also uh, fundamental, fundamental research uh, on, on things which, uh, to, as I say, I, I'm, I'm passionate about, about these things. So, I mean, in the ex exoplanet field, um, so Canada uh, has, has funded a very important instrument going on the next uh, space telescope. The successor, the successor, it's called the James Webb Telescope. Uh, it's going to be launched in the fall of 2018. Um, it's the most expensive instrument, science instrument ever, ever made. What will it do? Uh, well, it's a telescope, like the J. Like oh, it is a telescope. It's a telescope. Yeah. It's oh wow, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's an eight billion dollar telescope. Wow. Eight billion dollars. So you're not Canada. the only ones funding it. Well, I didn't fund the telescope, but uh, the Canadian government, through the Canadian Space Agency, has put uh, something like 230 million, something like that. I think it's the, the Canada's contribution, and the Canada's financed two two key instruments that are going on this thing. Um, one of which, the, the more important one, was the more interesting one, anyways, was that was, uh, was uh, conceived by René Doyle. He's the, he's the principal investigator. He specified the design of this thing. And, uh, you know, it was, it was built by a Canadian company under his direction. And it's going to get launched on this uh, on this giant telescope, uh, which will, when it's launched, uh, you, it'll be, like, big, big news. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's the most expensive instrument ever built. And, uh, so hopefully that I, rocket won't blow up. You said it. I mean, <laughs> I'm really... I'm kind of nervous about it, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I think it's got a, a very good chance of, of making it. And if it if it gets up there, it, it'll 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 be an astounding astounding discovery machine. You know, Is it going to be aimed out then? What kind of what, what do they want to prove with this machine? With this machine, well, the many things. I mean, being the most powerful telescope in existence, <laughs> you can just imagine. So. I mean, what René Doyon is going to do with this thing, the instrument that he designed, uh, has many many uses, but one of its particular strengths is its ability to, uh, to measure the atmospheres of exoplanets. 
to tell what, what they're made of, what the atmosphere is, what's in their atmospheres, which is... Uh, How does it do that from a distance? Well, uh, <laughs> Uh, they, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a technique called spectroscopy. You're familiar oh, okay. with spectroscopy. I have heard of that yeah. vaguely. So I don't actually know anything about how it works. But I yeah. it well, you know, when you put a, a prism in front of uh, the, the sun, it breaks up into like a rainbow. That's called the spectrum. Mm -hmm. right? So um, it turns out that um, all, all molecules, particularly when they're in a gaseous state, but uh, Have have a particular spectral signature that you can uh, you can identify like a fingerprint. Right. So like if there's hydrogen, for example, hydrogen uh, molecules and hydrogen atoms have uh, certain what they call emission lines. When you stimulate the hydrogen, the electrons decay, whatever they emit light at specific frequencies. And those frequencies are when you look at the spectrum, a spectrum of a star, you can see the lines of hydrogen. They stand because hydrogen is the biggest and most common element in the universe. So hydrogen has very distinct spectral lines, and every every type of element and every molecule has distinct spectral lines. Okay. So it's like a like a fingerprint. Okay, so, so that's how it's going to work. So, yeah. So anyway, so this uh, spectroscopy, you know, is a, is a, is a, is, a, is a part of astronomy that's been around for you know since the 19th century. The spectroscopy was was. Developed. In fact, you know, like um, helium, the, the, you know, you wrote helium, right? Yeah, right. Helium was discovered in the 19th century by a spectrograph of the sun. Really? Yeah, before it was discovered on the Earth. Okay. So helium is, a very, is the second most common element in the universe, and the sun has a lot of helium in it. And they have these lines in the spectrum of the sun, like, what the hell is that? And, uh, they, so called, they named it helium after Helios, which is the sun. Okay, and then helium was later discovered on the Earth. But the reason why helium is so hard to detect on the Earth is because it's a noble gas. It's a gas that doesn't react with anything. It doesn't form any compounds. And it's a very light gas, so any helium that happens to exist in the Earth's atmosphere eventually escapes to space. It doesn't stay in the atmosphere for very long. And so the only... The place where they found helium, which is another interesting thing. My interest in science was, you know, I read these things about helium, but it's an oval gas, and it was found in the sun. So where the hell on earth do you find this stuff? <laughs> it doesn't react with anything and escapes into space. And it turns out that where, they, where you find helium is in um, certain natural gas, uh, underground natural gas reservoirs. Oh, okay. And the reason why it collects there is because you know the earth, rocks of the Earth are radioactive. Okay, the Earth has so they're actually attracted. No, what happens when 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 things like uranium and other radioactive elements in the Earth's crust decay? They give off what are called beta particles. Okay. Beta particles are nuclei, helium nuclei. So it forms. It forms from the from the. So it forms in these crevices that can't escape. Uh, uh, right, because the, the the rocks around them are decaying, and they're giving off these these, these these beta particles, which attract electrons. So they form helium atoms, and because they're they're in, a, in an airtight uh, underground reservoir, it accumulates, okay. and that's where we find helium.
Wow. Okay. No wonder it's so rare. <laughs> it's so rare. And we're going to run out at some point when we run out, you know, because, like, uh, anyway, that, that's an interesting little, little highlight. But anyway, so spec, so it has a very sensitive, he's developed a, a really sensitive spectro, spe, spectrograph, a spectrometer, sensitive enough to, to, to measure. It's a very, very difficult measurement to make, but... Uh, complicated, but anyway, the bottom line is that they'll be able to use a spectral signature from the atmospheres of the other planets to tell what's what's in their atmospheres. Wow. And, How old uh, is Rennie Dwyer? How old is he? Probably uh, in his late 40s, maybe 50s, something like that. Of so I'm going to see him tonight, but they're putting on a, putting on a, a public uh, lecture tonight, which I hope to get to. Oh, okay. not too bad. But anyway, so uh, he's responsible for that instrument, and um, him and, and uh, all the other top uh, exoplanet hunters on the Earth, uh, competitors in other universities, and so on, are, are going to be competing to use that instrument to to try to find Earth 2.0. We're lucky, but he, no, okay, so the. It's very difficult to measure these planetary atmospheres, and. Um, you know, but they're they're going to try to um, pick out uh, exoplanet candidates that are similar in mass to the Earth and that are in a habitable zone. And if they can find the right candidates, they'll use this thing to try to um, measure their atmospheres. So if you find an Earth-sized planet in a habitable zone and it has oxygen and water in the atmosphere, then you know. And it might support life. Might support life. But that's that's okay. that's the whole the holy grail. But I mean, there's lots, tens and tens of other things going on in this exoplanet field. It's one of the areas of astronomy that's exploded in the last uh, 20 years or so. Wow. And so, so he's in the forefront of that. And, uh, and your so. foundation is helping support that too. Yep. yep. Okay. Along with the uh, Joe Shorts and all the public, uh, yep. basically, in trying to improve people's right. understanding of science. Yeah. Now, another thing that we've also uh, invested a fair amount in is in um, uh, McGill. We've invested in something called the Inst uh, Institute of for Sustainable Engineering, and uh, at the Ecopoly Technique in uh, something called the uh, uh, Trotsky Energy Institute. And those two institutes are basically um, encouraging research and study in sustainable engineering practices and sustainable energy production. Wow. Because, uh, you know, concerned about climate change and greenhouse gases and how, how our society can um, become more sustainable. And so we're funding uh, institutes and projects in that area. It's another, another area related to science. Okay. okay, so. Which is. <laughs> okay. That, that actually, I, I, that you know, probably you, links to my urban right, agriculture There stuff. you go. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah, so. in, a, in a different way, but still. Yeah, right, yeah. So same, it's related to environmental Similar goals. I mean, environmental goals. Sustainable living. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's, oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. I want to get to the two things that we need to finish with, which are my two questions about Canada, and then okay. the, uh, but first we want to just touch a little bit on your personal life. Okay. You said you have a family, you have kids, what, uh, just, just the, the brief <laughs> statement about what you're, what you do for fun on the side when you're not doing little well, model airplanes. Sure. Well, I love to spend time with the grandkids, we, my, we, my wife and I, that's one of our, uh, 
great joys and uh, so we have uh, two great daughters and uh, uh, so far three great grandkids and uh, we, we love spending time with them. Oh, that's and, Okay, and then the last question, which is my uh, Canadian one. Do you consider yourself a Canadian? And if so, why or why not? Well, I forgot <laughs> to ask you about your negative, your worst experience. My worst experience. Or your biggest mistake. Biggest mistake or your biggest vulnerability. <laughs> biggest vulnerability. Whichever you prefer. <laughs> Just so that people great. know you're human. Yeah, right, 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 right. I mean, uh, what would be... <coughs> I'll, I'll turn this I mean, off. Well, I mean, I, 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 have a, I have a lot of flaws. I mean, uh, no, nobody's perfect, uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, um, biggest, uh, biggest uh, vulnerability or biggest, uh, biggest mistake, I mean, um, hmm. you know, I mean, uh, I tend to be very stubborn and uh, dogmatic sometimes. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I may be, uh, I'm also, I'm not, I'm not the most, uh, uh, I'm more of a geek, I'm not really a, that much of a people person, you know, so that, that, that may turn people off sometimes, and uh, sometimes I, I'm, I'm known to be very stubborn and uh, uh, sometimes dig in my heels when I shouldn't. Uh, when did so, that happen? That happens a lot. <laughs> you know. Well, give but, me one uh, example that you can talk about publicly. I mean, um, I mean, one one example that I, I can say that I, I turned turned out good. You know, put that way is, uh, you know, my my interest in uh, the issue of climate change and, and that sort of thing uh, was really because of my youngest daughter. So, you know, uh, like I said, I've been a kind of a science geek all my life, and um, <clears throat> I, uh, I you know, tried to bring up my daughters with a certain, you know, it wasn't the biggest thing, but I, I tried to make, get them interested in that, and I would, sometimes if something exciting came up, you know, some new discovery or something, I would tell them about it, or tell them a story about it, and I would tell them how, you know, science is so important, and things like that. So uh, my youngest daughter studied environmental science at McGill, and she came home. She came from classes one day, and she started asking me, "Well, how come I never talk about climate change and climate science?" And I, I said, "Well, I don't know. I'm not. I haven't had really time to uh, to look into that. I, I I've seen I've seen the odd thing. I see some of these." protests by Greenpeace and other rather flamboyant groups out there doing this, that, and the other thing, and, you know, I'm not sure that that's science, it's more theatrics, it's this, that, the other thing, I don't know. Well, she said, well, I'm studying it, you know, and it's, it's real. <laughs> her her, her uh, elder daughter, who, my elder daughter, was, uh, who happened to be there at the, that time, who, was, who was, uh, took a PhD in microbiology, so she was very much into science. You know, so said, yeah, Dad. You know, it's real science. You should you should take that seriously. <laughs> so you had to look into it. I had to look. Into it. That's right. That's right. You were forced, basically kicking and streaming, to look into it. That's right. And so, had you said things you regret 
prior to your knowledge? Because I know you read a blog too, what science medicine. Uh, I don't, I, it's not me that runs a blog on that. But some other, but no. But I mean, I. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't ever, ever, I'm not a very public person, so I don't really public, but I probably said some things about some of these these protesters and so on that were not uh, very respectful or, or uh, you know, that were not, not uh, that I, I would be ashamed of if, I, if, if, if somebody said, repeated them now. But um, anyway... But I, 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 so you know, I, 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 I listened to her. You know, it took me a little while for it to sink in. But, that, <laughs> but I kept telling myself, you know, you, you've been interested in science all your life. You know, like, and you're, you're passionate about it. If you, if you really believe that, you better, you better look into this. You better, you better, you better, better find out what's going on. Yeah, now so, you're funding so, two so, sustainable so, so, so organizations. So I made the effort. I read some books on it. And yeah, okay. Good science. So I, that's right. So I, that's actually really fascinating because it's uh, yeah. uh, kids are always the ones who sort of, I guess they were teenagers at the time. <laughs> well, yeah, how old she, was she? She was probably in second year or something. I don't know. So she would have yeah. been about uh, 19, 20, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So they brought you. <laughs> so they brought me into that, which hadn't hadn't been. Who knows? I might have still be kind of uh, on the sidelines, uh, wondering what, what it's all about. And do you want to be on the sidelines? Like, is that a change that you actually are happy about? No, I mean, I, I'm 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 passionate about about science and technology, and um, you know, one of my uh, call it goals through the work that we're doing with our foundation is to try to spread that passion to, you know, more people. You know, even then, uh, when I was not really uh, a, a, a conscious, uh, might have been a, might, you might have called, I don't know if you, a skeptic is maybe too strong a word, I, w- I was a bit uncertain as to what, whether it was real or not at the time. I was, uh, had, but I hadn't looked into it. I hadn't spent time really deep, deep, deep developing into it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I said, like, uh, you know, if you're going to be promoting science, you shouldn't be picky. You should be looking at all of science and all of the issues that are particularly ones that are in the public domain and making sure that, you know, you, you understand the real science and you're not, not, you're not, you're not backing pseudoscience in any, in any way. Right. So, you know, I figured that that was a responsibility I had to myself. <laughs> That's what I believed in. So, you know... Uh, I made that that effort, and uh, if you if you have an open mind and you, you understand science and scientific method, uh, which I think I do, and you'll, you'll, you're forced to come to the conclusion that other scientists have come to. <laughs> that's that's what it is. Okay. Right. You know. So you accept what, uh, what a lot of things. A lot of people. You know. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't. It's not. Science is not about intuition. It's about what. Uh, Observations and uh, theory manage to connect to establish, you know, what, what, what the reality is, and most of it is is is, 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 is not intuitive. And, uh, right. All right. Last but, question. But, about but, the but it's very interesting. Yeah. I know you're. Right in, I, mean, I know you want to get on to that, but yeah. I, that's a great well, story Canada, because I mean, it does change who you are. I mean, it sounds like another big pivot point. Yeah. That's right. So, um, you know, so yeah. I mean, like I said. I'm constantly learning. 
<laughs> I love to learn stuff. But I'm mostly interested in learning about reality. You know, uh, so anyway, so I put a, put a high value on that. But as far as being a Canadian, I'm, I'm very proud of, uh, to be Canadian. And, um, you know, um, I... I've, 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 I've had, you know, in my, in my life, a greatest respect for the United States, and uh, mainly because of its great achievements in science, technology, and entrepreneurship. You know, it's, it's, but the turn that it's taken <laughs> in the last few months is, is, is very disturbing, very, very disturbing. So uh, I, I just hope that uh, things don't go too bad. But um, you know, I think Canada is a, is a country that uh, uh, is a moderate country, progressive country. Um, I like the fact that we have you know two two basic cultures here, and um, you know I. Um, You know, one of the things I I, uh, I did when I was uh, when I met my wife, you know, I, you know, I'm a francophone last name. I grew up in English, went to the English school system, so French is a rather weak second language. But when I met my wife, I decided, you know what, I need to learn French a lot better. So we're gonna we're gonna just speak French. You know. Oh, you've just started this. No, no, no. From the time I met her. Oh, from the time, which is how long ago now? Thirty-six well, years. Or so well, it was forty years. Over the forty years we were married, so wow. uh, okay. forty-two years ago, I guess. So I decided from the time I met her that you know what, this is a great opportunity for me to <laughs> improve my French. So we we, we spoke, started speaking French, and we speak French at home ever since. And she so, already spoke English well, or she didn't she care if she, she learned she, it? She, <laughs> oh, she spoke English well. She spoke English a lot better than I spoke French. At the time, and um, she probably still speaks English better than my French, but, but my French is, uh, is, uh, is, is you know good enough for, for 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 the work I do and for daily conversations and all that, but reasonable working knowledge and so on. So I'm I'm pretty good at, at it, but you know I, I living here, I figured that that's uh, something that uh, is a, is a great. Um, Value to have the ability to to speak a, speak another language and and that's part of your definition of Canada. That's part of my definition of Canada. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, are your kids bilingual too? Oh yeah, yeah. So the kids grew up. The way the kids grew up was, um, and even though I, I always spoke French with my wife, uh, the kids I always addressed them in English. Ah, so you did the two ways. So yeah, they so got they could, both languages <laughs> from the very beginning. So they're, they're right. perfectly bilingual. That's always something to be proud of, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. I thank appreciate you. your time, and right. uh, it was an awesome interview. You've been listening to Unapologetically Canadian. This episode was brought to you by Thrive Themes. Use Thrive Themes to make your website look the way you want it to. Slots asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. 
In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.